John 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and dwelt, or tabernacled, among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. You may be seated. Yes. Um, if anybody's short on the handout, please raise your hand now. There's some extra copies that were just finished printing. Okay. You good? Okay. So, all right. So, what I've done is I've laid out for you here an outline of the book where I've incorporated the simple outline I first gave you of the signs and the I am statements and how they're in the book. And I've layered on top of it for you now one of the structures that I believe helps us to see the book in terms of the divinity of Christ further and to see the way in which he dwells with us. So, the idea of the tabernacle being a part of that outline. Now, this work, um, I have a, a visual for this that Pastor Philip Kaiser was kind enough to email me to use. And so I have that uh, far in when we get to that. Uh, it'll be on page 7 of the handout. You'll see uh, that going through. So you might want to get page 7 to where you can see it and look at sort of the, the numbers of the outline at the same time so you can get this idea of the walking through the tabernacle. So the book of John takes us through the tabernacle to think about things, the way in which Christ is the tabernacle, the way in which he is the high priest, the way in which he is the sacrifice, the way in which he is the altar. Okay, So these things, we're going to deal with all of that as we go through the book. So the beginning of the book deals with 
the erecting of the tabernacle with creation and the idea of Christ coming as the incarnate one. And then you have also this idea of entering in. So we, we have the tabernacle itself being put up, but we also have entrance into it. And entrance is by faith. So we come into the tabernacle by faith. We come into Christ by faith. Then there is the idea of the brazen altar. It's a bronze altar for sacrifices. So in order to have the forgiveness of sins, we need Christ being dealt with as the sacrifice. And so we see the emphasis as soon as we get out of sort of this uh, initial place where we deal with the erecting of the tabernacle and we deal with the entry by faith, you start to have John the Baptist talking about Christ as the Lamb of God. So he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And so we deal with him in the altar. And we go from there and you have the brazen laver. You have the, the, the bronze holder of water. And so we have the doctrines of baptisms uh, that are laid out for us in this idea of washing um, and cleansing. And so there's the forgiveness of sins, but then there's the sanctifying work that's being dealt with. And then there is the enjoyment of the peaceable presence when we have the table of showbread. Showbread, you think of show and you think of show with an O, right? And so show with an O, that's fine, it's showing. And some modern translations will have that. But shoebread, which sounds like you're eating shoes, but that's not what's happening. So when we have the shoebread, what we have is this idea of the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence. And so Christ is present in the tabernacle. And so we have the bread of presence symbolized for us in the Lord's Supper now. But you have this idea of the indwelling of Christ. And so on the, that table with the bread of the presence, there's also not only these, these cakes or loaves, but there are also chalices. And so there's a wine there uh, that is there. So that obviously is a similar thing. Just as the water is an early type of baptism, this table of the shewbread is with wine. And we have there this idea of, of a feast that's very similar to the Lord's Supper. And you see that with Melchizedek. Uh, when he meets Abraham after the battle of the kings. And so this presence here of these things, we have the spiritual nourishment from the living bread, and we have interesting signs and I am statements that relate to that as well. You get into chapters 8 and 9, and we start to deal with Christ as the candlestick. So if you look at the, the diagram from Pastor Kaiser, you'll see the menorah or the candlestick there. Now, this consolidated candlestick, you have all of these candlesticks centralized in the old covenant and in the book of revelation where it takes this symbolism and scatters it out you have individual candlesticks with individual candles in individual churches okay and so the idea of the church as a temple or tabernacle spreading out and the light the lampstand being in them so this this idea of the temple going out and filling the earth and the dividing up of the light uh not because the, not to make the light weaker but the idea of an increase of light as the number of churches is increasing. And so this lampstand. And so the lampstand, we, we have this dealing with Christ as the candlestick or as the lampstand, and spiritual illumination by Christ, the light, gets talked about. And we have the I am statement, I am the light of the world. See how that relates. Um, and so then we have the healing of the man born blind, and you can see how that obviously relates to the lampstand. Now, when we get to there... You have the idea of Christ as a mediator coming in and doing the service of the temple. 
We have his shepherding work, priestly work, kingly work. His work as a servant all get emphasized. And so he is the door for the sheep. He is the good shepherd for the sheep. Uh, so as there's this resurrection work that he gives, he's, he's giving that as a mediator. And then we have the particular example of Lazarus' resurrection. And so those things kind of fit together with this priestly work that he does. And that's just outside of the veil, which the book of Hebrews tells us that he is the veil. And so there's an explanation that not only that, he is the veil, and there's the tearing of the veil that occurs at his death. Um, and so, you know, he's, his body was broken, the veil was torn. And that also makes it so that we are able to go in to the Holy of Holies, which is to come before God more boldly. So there's an altar of incense just before the veil. And the altar of incense has to do with prayer. And that idea that incense symbolizes the prayers of God's people rising before God. And so it's removed as a symbolic act in the New Covenant. Uh, but the reality of it continues. There's a moral teaching that's contained there, but a ceremonial element that is removed. Then we have the Ark of the Covenant inside of the Holy of Holies. And there's this idea of Christ as the high priest going into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice. And so John 17 is frequently referred to as the high priestly prayer. It's him preparing to go in to offer sacrifice to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat so that there would be an atoning for sins. And then there is the mercy seat itself and we see the blood of Christ applied. He is the sacrifice as well as the priest. And you go to page 2. We have the high priest exiting the Holy of Holies. And when the high priest exits the Holy of Holies, he declares that the sacrifice has been received and accepted by God. And he pronounces peace and forgiveness of sins to Israel. And we will see Christ use that wording, the wording of the, of the high priest in those chapters in John 20 and 21. So here is a way we can see we are walking through the tabernacle and we're reminded there also of the purpose statement which exists there in that last section, which is, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, there are the seven signs, which are signs and wonders. They're, they're miracles. Right? But there are also all of these other signs that are types and shadows that he's fulfilling. And there are the New Testament ceremonies that he gives to us. And so, as we think about the relationship of these things, the, the pomp, glory, and complexity of the Old Covenant pointing into Christ, and the simplicity and transportability of the New Covenant coming out from Christ and going into the world, these are things that we are reminded of that are signs, though they are not of the miraculous sign category. Now, we have been emphasizing the word logos throughout this, and so there will continue to be that as we do our kind of final flyover. And my goal here will be to help us to make some more connections about the tabernacle to Christ, and then also to help to make sure that with this last dusting over, that there is a reminder of the various ways in which we see Christ as the Word and the way in which the Word is used in terms of His divinity, His 
decree by which he creates and upholds the image of God that he lights every man with, the fact that he gives verbal propositional revelation by his prophets, the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit to convert and then sanctify his people, his presence as the incarnate one who is the God-man, and his work to cause the church to have a mature revelation, to come to know that mature revelation, and to capture it systematically in covenantal uniformity. And so we go on, and let me remind you now, looking as we fly through this text, verse 1 of chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So we have the divinity of Christ on display. He is the eternal Word. Verse 3, All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. We have Christ as the Creator. We have His decree, His fiat creation. Verse 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So we have, He is he has life of Himself, which is a mark of divinity. And that life is an intellectual life. He's a spirit. He's an eternal spirit. Spirits do spiritual things. The only spiritual things that spirits do is think. Spirits think, that's what they do. And so when you look at this idea of Christ having life, it's an intellectual life, and that life is the light of men, and he gives light. And so that light that he gives is the image of God, special revelation, illumination by the work of the Spirit, and the maturing work on a corporate level of the church. Verse 5. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Right, so man is the darkness, our unbelief, our holding to falsehood, our meaningless, absurd, vain pursuits, the irrationality where we seek to hold on to contradictory things and don't compare them enough to realize they contradict, the evil that proceeds from us proceeds from that evil of unbelief. We are the darkness. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And so we don't understand and believe, and thus we reject and oppose the life. At the same time, the light does not overcome, sorry, the darkness does not overcome the light. The darkness does not overcome the light. So this looking like things are getting worse and worse to Christ is for the purpose of an explosive outward work that is going to be the sprinting of the kingdom to fill the earth, to conquer the earth, to fill the earth deeply, to cause a great manifestation of the glory of God. And so we're going to see that work occurring going out from the end of John. And this is sort of the preparatory concentration, last stand, followed by an offensive. Verse 6, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. So we have John the Baptist giving verbal revelation. That's the Logos since 4. And we have the work of the Holy Spirit being necessary for people to believe it. And so the, the verbal revelation is given for the purpose of causing, uh, for the purpose of having the Holy Spirit use it to cause people to believe. And we have John speaking, giving an external light. And we have Christ coming as an incarnation, uh, as light. 
And we have the Holy Spirit working to illuminate people inwardly with light. So all of that there uh, is happening. John is using verbal revelation to point to the incarnation so that the Holy Spirit would illuminate people. And that's preparing the way. He came to prepare the way, to make straight the way, to make the path cleaned up. That's what make straight the way means. It means to clean up the path. King's coming, look busy, and clean up the path. Right? It's always like this, King. always looks nice. It's real nice. It's pretty. And so that cleaning up of the way, John the Baptist is coming and he's preparing men to work alongside Christ and to serve under him. And so that is the work that he does. And John the Baptist, when Jesus comes, he says, he must increase and I must decrease. And so he encourages his disciples to go. So John's following diminishes. And the following of Jesus increases. They go to him to be prepared to go out. So he's setting things up to prepare. Nine. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Okay, so Christ as the Logos is the true light. He's God. And also his word goes forth. And we possess God by possessing faith in his revelation. So... He gives light to every man. That's the image of God that we've talked about. The light of nature is the image of God. And the image of God is general revelation. General revelation is not empirical study. General revelation is the laws of logic and innate propositions. They are given at the coming into the world. They're given universally. They're given to all persons who enter the world. And so those who are missing some sort of sense do not lack that light. Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. So this is, this is emphasizing the guilt of this. He was there, he made the place, and they don't know it. And so we have God intentionally did not illuminate the world in a salvific way. He did in a general way, but not in a salvific way. And so... There's this decline that we see through history until we get to Christ, and then there's this explosion of the light out. And so there is a maturing of the church that's occurring even before Christ, but that maturing is a maturing as the darkness is also increasing, whereas now the maturing is such that the light is spreading faster than the darkness. We have a, a, a ratio change in the positive that's occurring. The general direction of history since Christ is the ratio change in the positive. More light is coming into the world. More light is filling the world. And the darkness is being dispelled, dispersed, taken, uh, overcome. So we have the rise of Christ, the rise of the light from Christ to now, and even until the return of Christ. So this occurs by filling the earth with the church, filling the church with the deep knowledge of God, destroying the unbelieving world through providential judgments, displacing and replacing the unbelieving world in mercy by causing children to be born into godly families and raised and causing people who were raised in ungodly families to be converted and brought out of the city of man into the city of God. Verse 11. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Okay, I want to emphasize this one because we need to think about how can they be his own if they don't receive him? How can they be his own if they don't receive him? Well, the beginning of the Ten Commandments says, I am the Lord 
your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. It's called the triple obligation. I am the Lord. He's the God who created everything. He is your God. He's talking to Israel, and he's saying, you're circumcised people. You're covenanted people. You're people who have received external signs. So there's a way in which your mind... And then there's also the redemptive work. Now, he brought them out of redemption, out of slavery, but Jesus Christ brings us out of slavery to sin. He brings us out of being the possession of the devil. So that's symbolic of those things. It is possible to be under the lordship of God without believing the truth of the gospel, right? Because he's over everything, including Satan and all reprobate persons. It is possible to be one of his in a certain sense without being a redeemed person. What is that sense? It's being in the oracles and ordinances. It's being under the public ministry. It's being one who is marked by external signs. So he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. This is not talking about the elect. It is not saying he came to the elect, and the elect didn't receive him. What it's saying is he came to the visible church Israel, and the visible church did not receive him. And so that idea, he's rejected by Israel, which results in the rejection of Israel by Christ. It results in the acceptance of the nations. They're brought into the visible church, and many of them are elect, which results in the later bringing back in of Israel as a nation. And the acceptance of Israel results in a worldwide life from the dead. That's that process. So this is a big deal. It's very important in history that Israel rejected Christ and we need to have a proper understanding of these categories of God's lordship over everything, his external covenant relationship through the idea of the visible church, and his saving work for the elect. Okay, so we're going to look at chapter 25 of the Westminster Confession. Section 1, the Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one, under Christ the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Okay, so the invisible church is everybody who has believed, who does believe, and ever will believe. Has believed, does believe, never will believe. Now we have the visible church. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal, under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law. That word, Catholic or universal, that's explanatory. Catholic means universal. That's what it's saying up at the top as well. Catholic or universal church. It's the worldwide. Catholic is a Greek word, and so you have this universal or Catholic church. Well, that's true of the invisible church, but it's also true of the visible church. What are we saying when we talk about the Catholic visible church? Are we saying, oh, that means we need a denomination that covers the whole globe. And which ones do that? Not very many. But Rome has lots and lots of people. There's like a billion of them. And so they're scattered throughout the world. Lots of priests re-sacrificing Christ all over the world. And so with that, maybe they're the only true church. Well, that's not the point. The point is not that there has to be at a particular time visible institutions that we recognize all over the world being united under one sort of government. The point is that the visible church is Catholic or universal in the gospel, in the new covenant, as distinct from the old covenant, the law, when the church was confined to one nation, Israel. So it's 
throughout the Gentiles, throughout all the nations. It's all over the world. It's in every nation as opposed to one nation. And that's the difference. That's how it's Catholic now. So the visible church was stuck, confined, in one nation. And if you wanted to join it, you needed to become a Jew. If you wanted to join the church in the Old Covenant, you had to become a Jew. And so now, there are Gentiles who did not become Jews in the worldwide church. That's the change of administration. And the visible church consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and their children. That was true under the Old Covenant. It's true in the New Covenant. So you have the people professing faith, and you have those who are born in their house as a holy seed. They receive the external sign, and in receiving the external sign, they are marked as a covenantal people. That's the way in which they're God's own. They're his in the covenantal sense. They're not elect. All of them. Some of them are. But they're not all elect. You can be baptized and not be elect. You can be elect and not be baptized. And so, this idea that there's an external covenant relationship to those throughout the world who profess the true religion and their children. That's the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the house and family of God out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. So ordinarily, that's where you get saved. Section 3. Under this Catholic visible church, Christ has given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God. The ministry is the service. The oracles is the preaching of the, the word. And the ordinances is the law order for the gathering and perfecting of the saints. So those things, this external ministry, the words that are given... And the ordinances, the law order, those are given for the purpose of gathering the saints and for the purpose of perfecting or maturing the saints in this life to the end of the world. So that's going to happen until Christ returns. And does by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them effectual thereunto. Christ makes the ministry, oracles, and ordinances effectual for the purpose of gathering and perfecting the saints. Section 4. This Catholic church has been sometimes more, sometimes less visible, and particular churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure, according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced. Ordinances administered and public worship performed more or less purely in them. So those are the marks, those are the notes of the church, doctrine, worship, government. Five, the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. And some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. That little line, very not PC line, synagogues of Satan, comes from John. So it comes from John, and John, talking about synagogues of Satan in the book of Revelation, is talking about churches that have rejected Christ... And they now are assemblies or synagogues of Satan. So, something that was once a church that rejects Christ, that rejects the authority of the word, that rejects the doctrine, worship, or government that God has appointed becomes a synagogue of Satan. And 
What happens in Christ coming to Israel is many of the local assemblies reject Christ and become synagogues of Satan. So Christ comes to those who were his own externally, but they rejected him. And they're rejecting him, they become synagogues of Satan. That's why Paul goes around from town to town going to synagogues and either seeing them become New Testament churches or splitting them. The purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. And some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to his will. There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition, that exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. So that's how we deal with this idea of the external, in terms of people who are God's own, Christ's own, but they're not elect. It's the visible church. Verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So receiving and believing are the same thing. You receive Christ, you believe Christ. Also, you receive Christ's name, you receive Christ. You believe Christ, you believe his name. There's a unity there. There's not some separation between his word and him. There's not some separation between his word and him. You believe his word, you believe him. You will often find people trying to talk about some sort of mystical thing or super religious thing or super pious thing where you've got to get beyond the word, past the word, to Christ. If the people by that mean you have to understand the meaning of the words and not use them as mere incantations... Sure. If we mean we have to go beyond cognitive content, no. So now, if we move past this into verse 14, my goal is to spend the remainder of the time focusing here on the idea of tabernacling. And the word became flesh and tabernacle dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, page 6, we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So he became flesh. This relates to the veil of the tabernacle or temple. You can see there in Hebrews 10, the veil, that is his flesh. So you see there this idea of the veil in the temple or the tabernacle, that is his flesh. There's an idea of, also by the way, this is a valuable, verse 22 is a valuable proof text for showing that sprinkling and washing are words that are associated with each other. So sprinkling is a type of washing. Washing can be done with sprinkling. And so you have, I have the two Greek words laid out for you there in transliteration. Neither one of them is baptismos, but there's this idea of sprinkling and washing, and those fit into the doctrines of baptisms. And so you have this Christ coming, his coming in the flesh is the veil, and that allows us, when it's torn, when it's broken, to enter the Holy of Holies. So we're to draw near, verse 22, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So the sprinkling is going to be pointing to the idea of of the blood and the washing with pure water is going to be pointing to the labor. Now, 
We are to hold fast to our confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We're supposed to exhort each other and to assemble together. We need to come together so we can minister to each other. We, together, are the temple. And we look back and we see that Christ is the one who makes it so that we can enter into the Holy of Holies, which is coming before God to engage with Him at His mercy seat. So there's a bold access that we have to be able to come in. So look at verse 19. It says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh. Okay, so he took on a human nature. We talked about the formula of Chalcedon and how he became man not by changing from God into man, but by adding. Not by having a composition where they're slapped together, but by having all the components of each. And not by having a mixing like Hercules, but instead there is a distinct set of two natures. And we also have this being without end. He doesn't stop being God and man. Um, I want to recommend to you at the bottom here, I mentioned two books by Gordon Clark, his Doctrine of the Trinity, the Trinity and the Incarnation. Those are the two best books I know of on those two things. There are other very good books on those, but this is the shortest. They pull the history together. They have all the verses organized well. Read the Trinity first. But if you want to go into that Doctrine of the Incarnation more fully, there's an excellent book for you. The Doctrine of the Trinity, the Trinity by Clark, you should read that first. And then you can go into the Incarnation. Those are going to be the fastest way for you to get a deeper understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity and the Incarnation that I know of. I've read a lot of books on both doctrines. I'm just telling you it's the best. If you have the option between reading like the third best and the best, life's short, read the best. If you want to read both, great. Fantastic, delightful, wonderful. Good use of time. Better than watching Scooby-Doo. But if, if you're only going to read one, read the best. Read the best. Okay, page 7. So now, we're talking about the idea of Christ as the tabernacle. He tabernacled amongst us. So, we have that image there. It helps you to kind of walk through the outline. And you're going to see the, in the book of John, we deal with these different things. We deal with Christ as those different things. And Hebrews chapter 9, which providentially we read this morning, deals with kind of walking through these things. And it relates them to Christ and talks about how he is and fulfills these things, how they point to him. So I'm going to walk you through that text a little bit. Verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant, that's the covenant with Moses, Okay, we're talking about the old covenant of grace, had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. Okay, We, we have ordinances of divine service now. We're doing it right now. Okay, The preaching of the word is an ordinance of divine service. And it was an ordinance of divine service in the old covenant too. Okay, So some things continue. But there are all these things about the tabernacle. Those things are ordinances of divine service. And we see all of these types and shadows removed. They are fulfilled in Christ and we are replaced with a remembrance of a far more simple divine service. And there's the earthly sanctuary. The earthly sanctuary has been replaced with the heavenly sanctuary, which is the church. Christ, the church, and heaven. There's a union there. When we talk about heaven... Coming to earth, we talk about the kingdom of heaven invading the earth. 
That's the church. The heavenly Jerusalem coming to earth and filling it is the church. Okay, so there's the earthly sanctuary, which is the tabernacle or temple, and the church is the heavenly sanctuary. It's where the rule of heaven is coming to earth more and more. Okay, verse 2. For a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was... And so the first part we're talking about is the holy place. You see that on the diagram? We're about to look at a list of stuff. It says the, the tabern- it says the lampstand, the table, the showbread, all that stuff. You see that in the holy place, right? Okay. So, for a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand. Remember, Christ is represented there by the lampstand. He's the light of the world. He gives light. So that's present there. The table. So we have the bread of his presence, and we also have the idea of of the cups of wine there. Let's point to his body and blood. And that's called the sanctuary, the holy place. Verse 3. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all. Literally, that says holy of holies. So uh, that's, that would be more clear to everybody. That's, that's actually what it says in the Greek. And everyone knows what the holy of holies is. So I don't know why they make it the holiest of all, but well, there we go. That's what it's saying. Which had, and then we see the stuff get listed out, the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold. Okay, being overlaid on all sides with gold, gold symbolizes the glory of God. So you have this idea of the glory of God being what's on display. The Holy of Holies, everything's just covered in gold. That's all you see. You just see gold. Okay? And so this idea of everything being covered in gold is about the glory of God being on display. And so when we look at the church being the tabernacle or the temple, we want here is the glory of God on display, not the glory of man. We want God's glory. And so we're careful to try to use the service that God has appointed. So the Ark of the Covenant was overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were, and now we have other symbols inside of it. It's like a Russian doll. We've got like a box and a box and a box. This is, just keep going down. It's turtles all the way down. We have, in which were, the golden pot. It's gold. What does gold symbolize? Oh, it symbolizes the glory of God. Okay, so we have the glory of God there. In which were the golden pot that had the manna. What's the manna? The manna is the heavenly bread. The bread from heaven, and it's the idea of Christ, right? You eat Christ. You eat this manna. Showbread. Do you think that there's this connection between the presence of God and the nourishing work of God and bread that's really emphasized? I mean, it seems to be an emphasis. So there's this bread. There's the bread of presence. And now there's the bread that comes from heaven. You put those things together, and you go, oh, Christ is the bread. And his word is called bread. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There's this chain. There's a, pardon the pun. There's a chain of breadcrumbs that are meant to take us. Hey, I'm doing it. I'm going to keep going. (laughs) So there's this chain of breadcrumbs that we come to Christ with, and we understand, we understand that Christ is the one who nourishes. And we have all these different things that we are to learn about him. So we have we get him by the word of God. He is present with us. He comes from heaven. Those are all things there. So, verse 3, Behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer. Okay, the golden censer. It's golden. Glory of God. And what is it, happens in the censer? You burn incense. And the incense represents the prayers of God's people. 
And you have the Ark of the Covenant, which is covered with gold. And the Ark of the Covenant is containing things. It has the golden pot that has the manna. It has Aaron's rod that budded. Aaron's rod is a symbol of authority. Do you remember the idea of Aaron's rod being used to... You have the throwing down of Aaron's rod to do things like turn it into a snake. You have it being used for miracles. And then you have the idea that even though it's a dead piece of wood, God causes it to have a live bloom. It's an olive bloom. That, it's not an olive, sorry. An almond bloom that appears on it. And so you have this idea of the rod, and it's budded, even though it's dead wood. So there's resurrection symbolized there, and there's authority. There's authority, power, resurrection there. And then you have the tablets of the covenant. And we're told that the old covenant has writing on stone. And we're told that in the new covenant, there's going to be writing on our hearts. And there's this promise of the idea of the tablets of our hearts having the word of God, the law of God written on them. So do you see how this symbolizes the church and also symbolizes Christ? And so you have this idea of the covenant. And so there is this ark that contains the covenant. Here are the promises of the covenant. These are all promises of the old covenant. Nurture manna from heaven. Authority with power budded. It's living power. The strength of life. We saw that in Psalm 27. And the tablets of the covenant. The law being given. And there's a change of degree. So in the Old Covenant, you have many people who are unbelieving. The church is filled with lots and lots of unbelievers. And wandering around in the wilderness, there's unbelief dominating. And in the New Covenant, there's going to be a greater and greater saturation of faith in the church and a greater and greater saturation of the world by the church. So the tabernacle points to all these things and it points to Christ. Christ does this through his body, the church. Page 8. And above it, so above the Ark of the Covenant, so on the, on the top of it, you have the cherubim of glory. So you have these glorious angels who are at the feet of God, just like you see in Isaiah 6. I can't remember if it's Isaiah 6 or Isaiah 7. One of those two chapters, you'll figure it out, open it up, you'll see there are angels in one of the two. And so you have the cherubim of glory, and they are representing here the throne of God with God being covered, having these angels there calling him holy, holy, holy. And so the mercy seat is pointing to the throne of God in heaven. So this is a touch point of heaven to earth. And that's what the church has. The church is a touch point of heaven to earth. It's the invasion of earth by heaven. It's the throne there. It's the footstool. Not the whole throne. It's the footstool. The earth is the footstool of God. It's right there. Literal, physical feet. I'm kidding. But it's, he's a spirit. He's omnipresent. So we have there this symbol of the footstool. And Christ is reigning at the right hand of the Father now until he makes the earth his footstool. So, above the ark were these cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. And everybody who ever read that line in the book of Hebrews was always like, why not? Just do it. 
People are going to read this letter a lot. Verse 6. And when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, the holy place, performing the services. This is that ministry, the use of the ordinances of God to serve. But in the second part, that's the Holy of Holies, the high priest went alone once a year. Not without blood, right? It's always with a bloody sacrifice. Which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all, the Holy of Holies, was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle, the physical one, was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time, the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, like before 70 AD, in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Okay, so the time, there's this time period when even though the way in has been made manifest because Christ has already come, there was still a period of time where there were this, these external services, the, the service that was, perf- that was performed with gifts and sacrifices. So the period between the death of Christ and the destruction of the temple is a period in which Christ has come, the reality has come, and yet there continued to be these external signs of the Old Covenant being ministered. And you see apostles partaking in them. And you see Paul going to the temple and participating in temple worship. So it's still lawful at that time. So there's this period of time where you have these external signs still in existence, and they're lawful, but they're no longer required. We have that plainly laid out. The Gentiles were not to be brought into it, and then it wasn't an obligation. You're not supposed to judge people in it. So that time of overlap, where it was allowed but not required, is that period of time after Christ died and was resurrected, but before the destruction of Jerusalem. And so this period, verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicated this, that the way into the holiest of all, the Holy of Holies, was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. So there's something that's still not manifest yet. You know what's not manifest yet at the writing of the time of Hebrews? It's not Jesus coming. It's not the incarnation. It's not the death of Christ. That's not what's not manifest. That happened already. What's not manifest is the completion of the new covenant in the giving of the New Testament scriptures. They weren't done yet. The completion of that results in the destruction of Jerusalem. The completion of that results in the destruction of Jerusalem. And when the new covenant was finished and given, you don't allow the continuation of the old administration. That period of time was a period of time in which there was still a giving of the new covenant. It was not complete yet. And once the new covenant was captured, completed in the New Testament, the whole New Testament writings, the 27 books... That's the period of time in which it's fully manifest and then there's a destruction of the old. Those Old Testament signs cannot accomplish the reality by their own power. And guess what? In the New Covenant, the signs that point to the same things cannot accomplish it by their power either. Baptism and the Lord's Supper do not have the power of the forgiveness of sins or sanctification. They can't do any of it. The Old Covenant signs can't do it and the New Covenant signs can't do it. They all point to the reality of Christ. 
He is pointed to in the signs of both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And so we look at the types of the ordinances that are being talked about, these ones that couldn't make those who did them perfect. It couldn't make them perfect in regard to their conscience. Verse 10, concerning, concerned only with foods and drinks. Do we have foods and drinks? Do we have like bread and wine that we take? We think we're so much more spiritual, right? And we just, we bread and wine too. We do bread and wine. We have the same spiritual rock, the same spiritual food, the same spiritual drink. So the foods by themselves can't do it. The drinks by themselves can't do it. The various washings, there's the word baptisms. There were baptisms in the Old Covenant. John gave a baptism that was an Old Covenant baptism. There were baptisms of hands. There were baptisms of all sorts of things. Baptisms existed in the Old Covenant. Concerned these external things of food and drink and baptisms and the fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. They couldn't do it. The time of Reformation is the time of the New Covenant when new forms reform, new forms reform. So that means when new forms were returning to a form, so you're renewed to return to a form, were given to replace the old forms. That's the time of Reformation. So this idea of old and new forms, Westminster Confession, chapter 19.3, does a good job of pointing to this idea. So I want to give you this. Beside the moral law, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church under age, right? So it's the Old Testament church stuck in one nation. Ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances. Typical. No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying typological, right? That's the idea. It's a type. It's a typical in the sense that it's relating to a type. Containing several type-based ordinances. In other words, they're signs that point to a type Partly of worship, prefiguring Christ. There's the foreshadowing. His graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits. And partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties. Okay? So think about this. The ceremonial law communicates two things. It, type, it gives us types and shadows, which are fulfilled. And it gives us moral instruction. So Paul takes, for example, something that None of us, if we were just reading the Old Testament, would have, frankly, applied ever. He goes and says, you know, when it says, don't put a muzzle on an ox when he treads out the grain, he says, that applies to ministers. It applies to workmen. And he gives a moral instruction out of it for today. Right? None of us would have done that. Right? We wouldn't have done it. But the Apostle Paul pulls it out and shows it to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so there are moral teachings. And so now we have to go back and be careful to find the moral teachings that are a part of the ceremonial law. And we also need to find the types and the foreshadowings. So when we look at the tabernacle, there are things there that are types and shadows. And there are things there that are moral teachings. And we need to figure out which is which. Here's a hint. If it's fulfilled in Christ, it's a prefiguring. It's a type. If it's not something that has to be fulfilled, it's a moral teaching. If the fulfillment occurs in Christ, it's a type and shadow. If it's not something that's fulfilled in Christ, then it's a moral teaching. Page 9. So, 
the remaining verses deal with the idea of Christ as the high priest and what he does to make these things better in terms of his work, and it relates it to the types. And I've, I've already walked through some of that, but I wanted to leave that for you there. So I'd encourage you to, to read it on your own time. But returning to the John text, okay, the tabernacling idea, verse 14, The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we beheld his glory. How do you behold his glory? Remember, his glory is his attributes. He's invisible. And so you see the glory of God. You behold his glory by understanding his attributes and believing them. You can, you can behold them by understanding them. But if you believe them, that's going to be a, a greater thing. That's going to be a, you now actually assent to who God is and what he has done. And so there's a greaterness to that. But the beholding in terms of understanding was being talked about there. So the glory of the only begotten of the Father is emphasized, and that's another emphasis on the fact that God, that Christ is God. So that's obviously an emphasis throughout this prologue chunk. Christ is God, and we have the doctrine of the Trinity, where he is equal in power and glory. He shares the definition of godness with the other two members of the Trinity. So go to page 10. Point 24, he's full of grace and truth. Remember, grace here is the gifting of grace. He's full of gifting or power, and he's full of knowledge or faith. That's what the truth is. So we see this throughout the scriptures, this idea that there's gifting from the Holy Spirit, and there's knowledge or wisdom, there's truth. So those are the emphases. He's full of these things. And he gives them to us in the New Covenant. He fills us with it. He gives the church the power to go out and do it. Verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. So this is an argument from the fact that God, that Christ is eternal, and therefore he's God, and therefore he's higher authority than John. Verse 16, And of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's think about of his fullness we have received, we have all received. His fullness, remember, is the maturity of revelation. It's the fullness of the knowledge of God. That's what's being talked about. We went through that last time. I've kept a few of the proof texts there. And how have we all received it? Who has received it? Well, in a certain sense, the world received it because there's this testimony that the world rejects. The church also, the visible church, receives the testimony. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Well, they received it externally, but they didn't receive it internally. They didn't believe. So the visible church receives the testimony that it has externally covenanted to uphold and obey, and then it rejected it. It broke the covenant. Then there's the elect, and the elect receive the testimony as belief. So these are the ways in which these various groups have received. We can use receive in different senses there. So we've all received grace for grace, and the grace for grace is talking about the external change of covenant, the old covenant for the new covenant. It's saying we've, ext- we've received the new covenant of grace to replace the old covenant of grace. And so the law was given through Moses, that's the old covenant, and it's replaced with the new covenant of grace. But grace and truth 
came through Jesus Christ. We have the law, the old covenant, and there's a greater gifting of grace in terms of gifts, right? And there's a greater increase of knowledge, truth, in the new covenant through Jesus Christ. So we have the two mediators, Moses and Christ, and we have the greater mediator, Christ, and we have more power and we have more truth coming through the mediation of Christ. It's the same covenant of grace, but one is the fulfillment. All right. So go to page 12. Top of the page, Christ gives the fullness of the truth and the when the law provides only a partial truth. Okay, that's what 1 Corinthians teaches us in 1 Corinthians 13 as well. So I have a Calvin quote from you. We looked at that last time. That reemphasizes that fact. And he says, if you separate the law from Christ, nothing remains in it except empty shapes. In other words, there's not a fullness. There's an outline but not fullness. In the law is the shadow, but the reality is in Christ. It must not be supposed that anything false was shown in the law, for Christ is the soul who gives life to what otherwise would have been dead in the law. There's Calvin. So point 31. Beholding his glory is beholding the glory of God. So when we behold the glory of Christ, we're beholding the glory of God. That's the glory of the Father. So the equality of the Father and the Son is emphasized. We have that Hebrew text below, which we talked about last time. He is the only begotten Son in the bosom of the Father. He's equal to the Father in essence and glory. But he's got a different covenant station. And so we have the essential unity of the Trinity. They agree about everything. He's in the bosom of the Father. He's getting the heart of the Father. He knows what the Father believes, knows. Right? They they're both know everything. And there's a covenantal unity that makes them have different roles. The Son has declared the Father, which allows people who cannot and have not seen the Father to see the Father with the mind. You can't see the Father with your eyes, but you can see Him with the mind. And that occurs through the declaration, through the word, through the propositional revelation. So the apostolic deposit is given, and the church matures in its understanding of that deposit, the scriptures, and then we take possession of the deposit more and more as our inheritance, as we understand it more and more, and we then take on a covenant of uniformity. So that's my effort to go through the prologue of John and to tell you what it means. I feel totally inadequate. There are all sorts of times where I feel like pulling out my hair is preparing this thing. There is enormous amounts of information that I just don't know how to present it properly to make it useful the desire to review over and over again and just like make you all read off lists of terms with a glossary is very high and i basically snuck a lot of that in you know that i'm sorry thank you and you should continue to try to understand the terms but this first 18 verses is the seed form of the whole book of john okay so now i'm going to get to go through 21 chapters unpacking it at a less dense rate. And so we're going to go through that, and we're going to have it so it's more digestible. But this is my effort to give you some sense of what this, this chunk is. So any comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights?